Let's all stand together. We're going to be looking in the book of Jude, Jude 14. Uh, Jude uh, 14 and verse 15. Uh, Jude 14 and 15. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. May God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. Calling our message today back to the future because we go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 5, in fact, uh, to tell the story of Enoch and a prophecy that he made so long ago that is yet to be fulfilled. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So we go back, back to Genesis 5, to see the future. The Lord comes. Jude was writing a short letter. His intention was to write about the gospel, the truth of salvation. And it would have been a short letter like this one, no doubt, one that could have easily been carried around and used much the way that we use gospel tracts today uh, to help us to share the gospel with other people. Uh, but the Holy Spirit had something else in mind. And instead he inspired Jude to write uh, to uh, all of his audience, certainly in that day. But to also reach across all the intervening centuries, even to today. To encourage God's people to earnestly contend for the faith. Which was once for all delivered unto the saints. He would implore us and compel us then to contend for this faith, knowing that there would be many things both from the outside and from the inside that would challenge our faith. And in the end, that's where we're going to be contending for the faith. Not so much that we're going to go out and argue with this one or argue with that one. No, listen, the, the big battle that we all fight is for our own faith. Really, when we get down to it, the only person whose faith we have any control over at all is our own, our own faith. And that's where this battle was going to be fought. Certainly it's important for us to preach the truth, teach the truth, stand for the truth, and, and no doubt that would be involved. But you can't do that unless that faith is alive and living in your heart. And a lot of times the reason why people stop contending for the faith without is because they've let their faith be eroded away within. Their faith's grown weak. And therefore, they're not really comfortable uh, trying to share that with other people. Uh, Jude knew that there were those then and there would be those today who would make it their job, their life work, if you will, to get believers to abandon their faith. And we see that happening uh, incredible number, in incredible numbers today as more and more people are turning away. Though they've been raised to know Jesus Christ. Many made professions of faith. Church members raised in church, taught Bible school, taught in Bible school, been in Awana. And yet in spite of everything that we do, when they enter young adulthood, they turn away from their faith. Many reject God altogether. And so we see the battle that we're up against. And 
In today's passage then, Jude is going to take us all the way back and he's going to tell us how important this battle really is as he goes back to the beginning to explain the future. Jude would understand that many people would turn away from the faith because they never really had the faith at all. They would reject Jesus at some point in time, but maybe even the profession they made to begin with was wrong. They were pretenders, which is why we've called this series The Great Pretenders. But this morning we're going to uh, look in at Jude's message and what Enoch had to say. In Genesis 5:21, we're told that Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we have the passage in Jude. We have this passage in Genesis chapter 5. We also have this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found... Because God had translated him, for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, this is what we know about Enoch. Uh, he mentions his son, Methuselah. He's best remembered as being the oldest man who ever lived. Uh, we know that Enoch walked with God, and that must have been a profound time of faithful fellowship. We know that Enoch lived in the days before Noah and the flood. So that his days were very wicked days, making his life of fellowship with God in the midst of such an evil environment even that more, much more remarkable. But by far, uh, the most amazing thing we know about Enoch was his translation. He was not because God took him. Now generally when we think of translation, we think of a language being changed from one language to another language. Or, or somebody uh, maybe that is interpreting that so that we get the meaning of what someone else is saying. They've translated it for us, so we're preaching through a translator. Uh, but actually the Greek word that's used here is the word that our dreaded word, monasticize, is derived. And it means uh, to change from one place to another or to move from one place to another. That's exactly uh, what has happened uh, to Enoch. He was moved from one place to another. His name means dedicated. Not surprising, right? He walked with God. He was not a great patriarch like Abraham. He was not a great leader like Moses. He was not a great fighter like David. He was not a savior like Joseph. Enoch stands out for one thing. He walked with God. In a way, he seemed to be much like an ordinary person who achieved greatness because of his great devotion to God. You know, you and I may not be in any of those positions that the world would recognize as being great positions or great places. We might not have uh, the great talents that the world would recognize. But we can all excel in our devotion to God. You can be devoted to God as anybody else can. Nobody, nobody corners the market on that. Nobody uh, absolutely has a monopoly on that. We all can dedicate ourselves to God and walk with Him. In Enoch's case, he did that so well and for so long that 
God just took him home without dying. But today, Enoch's story is used by Jude to give us a bit more information because Enoch was a prophet. We know he was a prophet from what he named his son. Uh, his son's name, Methuselah, roughly translated, means when he dies, there'll be death. And of course, he died the year of the flood. Uh, so we know Enoch was a prophet, and the Bible calls him a prophet, and one of the things that he prophesied was recorded for us in our text. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch preached to an ungodly world, and he preached the message of the Messiah. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of the world was very great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is, people did wickedly. And all they thought about was how to do more evil and more wickedness. That's what God said. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also uh, the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark... And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So Enoch, of whom it could be said that he was the first prophet. And he prophesied then of the second coming of Christ. Now I can't tell you this morning that Enoch understood all of that. Uh, because uh, the Old Testament prophets did not understand that there would be a first coming of Jesus Christ. And then there would be a second coming of Jesus Christ. They did not understand that he would come and, and be the suffering substitute and then there'd come a time when he'd return as king of kings. Uh, those things were hidden to them. God didn't reveal it. It was a mystery. They didn't understand it until it happened. Uh, but we do know that he was promising that Jesus Christ would return and that he would come in judgment. Now I want to make something very clear to you this morning. <laughs> and this is good news. Are you ready? Uh, when he is talking about this, he is not talking about the future of God's people. Let me show you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, uh, these things can, uh, concerning God's people can be summed up in three uh, statements. There is uh, the return of Christ, number one. There is the resurrection of the dead in Christ, number two. And then there is the rapture of the living believers in Christ, number three. And then the Bible promises that time of incredible judgment known as the great tribulation. At the end of that then is the time that Jude promised. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to finish that great work of judgment upon the earth. But that time of judgment is not for you as a believer in Christ. It's not for me. Because God has not appointed us under wrath. We'll see that later. There was another prominent characteristic of Enoch's day in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So there was, uh, there was Enoch who was preaching. There was Methuselah, no doubt, who was sharing the message of, of that impending judgment of God. 
And yet Jesus would describe the reaction of the people. Though the Spirit of God was working mightily, and we see that here. The Spirit was convicting people. The Spirit was working mightily. God was using His prophets to declare the Word. And yet in spite of all that preaching, in spite of the Spirit working, people were mightily indifferent to God and His Word. How much so? How many people were saved from the flood? Eight. Out of a whole population, eight. They were mightily indifferent. Though the word was preached, though the Spirit of God was working mightily, People went right on the back of their business. What did Jesus say? They were marrying and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking. That is, they were attending to their immediate needs. And they were making, at the same time, long-term plans for the future, marrying and giving in marriage. So they were concerned about what they were going to eat every day, what they were going to drink. They were concerned about who they were going to marry, what they were going to do with their lives had absolutely no concern about their eternal destiny. That was the world. That was the world Enoch lived in. That's the world Noah preached in. But let me give you another thought this morning. That's the world you and I live in. How do I know that? I didn't make that up. Jesus Christ himself said it. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So, with the message that God gave through Enoch and the message that He's giving us today, we've gone back, we're going into the future. This message of Christ's coming takes on a couple of parts for us, real simple today. Uh, first off, there is that, just that simple promise. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Very simple message. The Lord comes. Now, you and I might be inclined to say it this way the Lord is coming. But Jude said, The Lord comes. And he said it in a way so that he presented it as completed action. Now, we have things that are either past or present, but the Greeks had a way of, th of talking about things. It's just finished. It's completed. It doesn't have any, any time or any concept of time. So when he said the Lord has come, he used that construction. What he was trying to get us to understand is that the Lord's coming is completed action. That is that the coming of Jesus Christ is as sure today as if it had already happened because in God's eyes, he sees it already done. He's presented. The Lord comes. That's what he said. Very simple. The Lord comes. Now, if it's so sure, why do we go all the way back to the book of Genesis and it hadn't happened yet? Well, the answer to that is given to us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in it 
will be burned up. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. 7,000 years. So what? That's not because the Lord is, is slack. It's not because He's lazy about fulfilling His promises. Not at all. He is long-suffering. Why has it been so long? Simon Peter tells us. Because the long-suffering of God means salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God has held off this time of incredible judgment. He has been long-suffering and patient, giving men multiple opportunities to be saved. I've told you before, as far as I can remember, the first time I ever really got under conviction for my sins, I was saved. First time I ever really realized I was lost. I was in a revival meeting. Back then we had two-a-day services. And uh, I was in the morning, me and, and the other kids and all the women. Uh, we, <laughs> that, that was all that was there. Uh, and, uh, the men were down at the paper mill working. And, uh, we, but we had morning services anyway. There I was sitting there. The preacher was preaching about salvation. I got under conviction. I tried to go forward the invitation. My sister wouldn't let me out. She thought I was misbehaving. But Mama saw somehow miraculously, amazingly, the preachers came over that afternoon and talked to me. As far as I know, that was the first time I ever really realized that I needed to be saved and I was saved. But a lot of you can't give that testimony. Aren't you glad God gave you a second chance? Third, fourth, fifteenth, seventy-five, hundred and fiftieth. Aren't you glad God was long-suffering? God is long-suffering to this world. The coming of Jesus Christ to execute judgment on this world is as sure, Jude says, as if it had already happened. But it hasn't happened yet, and Simon Peter tells us why. Because God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. The simple promise, the Lord is coming. Then there's a scary prospect. He's coming, verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's a lot of ungodliness that Jude's talking about here. The Lord's coming, and that isn't scary in and of itself. But when he talks about how that he is coming to ex execute judgment upon all, first he mentions their ungodly deeds. And it's easy to see this everywhere, all around. People who are living their lives as if God did not exist at all. Ungodliness. We see that ungodliness is not only practiced, it is flaunted with pride in our world today. It happens. So it isn't just that people reject God or refuse to believe in them. It is that they have embraced sin. It's what John described when he said that this is the condemnation. That men 
that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Embrace the sin. And they'll either become then totally apathetic toward God, they just don't care, or even antagonistic toward God. I don't remember the last time. Maybe you've seen it. I don't watch a lot of sports on TV. But have you seen anybody with a John 3.16 sign lately at a sporting event? Have you all seen that? I don't remember the last time I saw that. Hmm? Not in a long time. I don't remember. But I'll tell you what I'm seeing more of all the time, and that's folks wearing T-shirts that said, if Jesus comes back, kill him again. I'm seeing more and more of those. More and more events. You say, would people actually say that? Yes. Yes, it's been said. You see, Jude not only mentions their ungodly deeds, but also their ungodly words, their speeches that they are saying against him, the outright blasphemy, hostility, so frequently hurled around at God, His Word, and all those who believe it. Jude uses an interesting word in convince. It really means to convict. It is a legal term that means to make guilty or to determine the guilt. I realize that all of us struggle sometimes with guilt. It's a bad thing to uh, have... Uh, uh, improper feelings of guilt but of course it's a good thing to feel guilty when we are guilty that's a good thing it's a tragedy when we're wrong and we can't feel guilty anymore the Bible even warns about it because people he said will have a seared conscience so that they're no longer able to feel the pains of guilt or remorse And so it will be necessary then when Jesus returns in judgment, Jude says, not only for them to execute, for him to execute judgment upon all, but also to convict them of their ungodliness. All of it. What they did and what they said. It was a very good illustration of this, though it's a tragic scene that happened in Oklahoma back in 1995 to a man named Robert Breachin. Breachin was a murderer. He was scheduled to die by lethal injection in Oklahoma for murder. When the time of his execution arrived, the prison officials found him in his bed. His pupils were dilated. He was unresponsive. They couldn't wake him up. They had to take him to the hospital, though... He was scheduled to die that night at midnight. They had to take him to the hospital to revive him because the ruling of the Supreme Court back in 1986 said that you cannot execute a person who is not aware, who's not mentally alert or aware of his surroundings or her surroundings. So strangely, they actually had to take him to the hospital, wake him up, pump his stomach, get him alert, and then they took him back out to the prison where he was executed for his crime. They had to wake him up before they could execute him. When I see that the Bible speaks of how that Jesus is going to not only execute judgment, but he is going to convict all of those upon whom his judgment falls. 
He's telling us that He's going to make sure that everybody knows why His judgment falls on them. Jude mentions their ungodly deeds, their ungodly words. That judgment is coming. But I want to share with you this morning the foundational principle of the Christian faith that we are absolutely earnestly contending for. Remember, Simon Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. You see, Jude is reminding us about what this is all about. And that is that Enoch long ago promised to us all the way back to the book of Genesis, which means that it's throughout the whole Word of God. God has promised that Jesus is coming, and He's coming to this earth in a time of incredible judgment. He is coming with His saints, and He is going to execute judgment on the world, not arbitrarily. He'll take the time to convict, convince people why that they are facing that eternal judgment. But I have the good news today that not one of you, not one person in this building, not one person in this city, not one person in this state, not one person in this nation, not one person on this world has to suffer the judgment of God. And God don't want you to. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you to be saved. God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the will of God. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven, came upon this earth. That's exactly what 2 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us. We obtained salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus took the judgment of God in your place and in mine. So we don't have to take it. And the only way that we can end up taking the judgment of God is by refusing Jesus Christ. You see, all these ungodly deeds, all those ungodly words, they could all be put under the blood of Jesus. You understand? All those ungodly deeds, all those ungodly words, they can all be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. But if you reject Jesus Christ, then not one of those ungodly deeds, not one of those ungodly words, will go unpunished. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus told the story. I'm not going to read a passage there. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the story. Because you see, one of the big reasons why that so many people are turning away from faith today is because they really don't like this message of judgment. And I know it's... it's I, I want you to say... I want you to understand this morning that 
this has never been really all that popular. I mean, we've always kind of made fun of those old hellfire and brimstone preachers, but I don't know how you can preach the Word of God without warning people about the judgment to come. It's in there. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, one end to the other, there's the warning about the judgment of God. But oh, there's also the glorious message of redemption through Jesus Christ. Jesus told a story. He told about a man who owned a vineyard. He had a farm. He rented it out, leased it out to some husbandmen, some men who would farm the, the farm. It came harvest time. It was time for him to collect his rent from the property. He sent his servant to get it. And they beat him, killed him, refused to pay. In an amazing act of grace, the landowner then sent more servants. And they continued to refuse to pay. And they continued to beat and kill the servants that he sent. Finally, Jesus said, this landowner said, I'll send my son. They'll reverence my son. But instead they saw him. They said, this is the heir. We'll kill him and obtain the whole thing. And they killed him. Now before the end of that chapter, the Bible says the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus was preaching to, they were upset and in fact they wanted to kill him because they realized he was preaching to them. And he was. You see, that was the story. Israel, the world, belonged to God. He had placed them there to tend it. They were responsible, obligated to Him, but they threw off those restraints. We'll do whatever we want. We'll live however we live. This is ours. We'll keep it all to ourselves. Last of all, God sent His Son. They killed Him. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? I mean, it was the end of the parable, but it was not the end of the story. Because the Son came back. He came back to life, didn't He? They killed him, but he didn't stay dead. What did he do? He went right back to that same leased out piece of ground. And those same people that had killed him. The same people that killed the prophets. Rejected the message. They've killed him, but he's come back. He's alive. And he sent him a message. Repent, and I'll forgive you. Jesus asked them, now what do you think? What do you think that the owners should do to these people? Why, they said, he ought to wipe them out. That's exactly what they deserve. God didn't do that. In His grace, He offers us forgiveness. Eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place. All the people who are walking away from the Christian faith because they don't like the message of God's judgment are not looking at both sides of that story. They don't look 
at the story that says God took our judgment for us. That God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world unto himself and has committed unto us the message of reconciliation so that we plead with the lost and dying world, be reconciled to God. In our next message, we're going to see how Jude calls us to get that message out. But today we'll stop here and just think. The Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment. That does not have to be a fearsome thing to you because you can repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and He'll save you right where you sit. Let's stand together.